assent. If we love Numenor also, let us enjoy it before they ruin it. We also are daughters of the great, and we have wills and courage of our own. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we're looking at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation, with a special focus on Amazon's upcoming big-budget adaptation of the Legendarium. I'm joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Arendis, the Mariner's Wife. Gosh, Michael, you must be psychic because I <laughs> I am joined today by Michael Rowland, aka Tar Aldarion, the sixth king of Numenor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> great perfect, minds think perfect. alike. It it is appropriate for this episode. If we're gonna wrap up this story, then we should That's name right. each other we, characters. Yes, we are going to wrap up the fate of Ancalame from the Mariner's Wife. And then we are welcoming a very special guest who is going to help us look back on the whole story and explore what it has to say about women, gender, and relationships. So this is an exciting episode, folks. Our first guest ever. Now, before we get started, you know, every week we ask you to subscribe and share us on social media and and certainly go ahead and do those things. But today we want to ask you to do something a little different. Please just go out there and share us with one person. That's our call to action to you. That's our assignment to all you listeners. If you like what we're doing, tell one person about us. If they're a Tolkien fan, great. If they're not a Tolkien fan, but you think they might be one someday, tell them. And um, Even that, better. We want to bring better. more people into the fold. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> spread the word one person at a time. We We would absolutely love it. And I'll tell you, that was actually one of the most gratifying things uh, that I heard after we started doing this uh, podcast. My sister, um, Grace, who's never read a word of Tolkien, after listening to a couple of our episodes, being the supportive sister that she is and, and you know being curious to hear what her goofy brother is doing, uh, she listened to our podcast and she decided, hey, I'm putting this on my summer reading list. I really want to read some Tolkien. So I, I'm really proud of us for accomplishing that feat. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm always really excited to hear about people who discover Tolkien and who may not have been open to it, but, you know, give it a shot and and uncover that it is this gem and such a wealth of, of uh, amazing literature. So before we get to the main event, though, we've got a couple updates to share. So first, in our last episode, we talked about the YouTube channel History of the Ages and how their channel got shut down for copyright infringement, even though they had resolved two of the three complaints against them. Well, YouTube gave them their channel back. Hooray! Um, But they elected to launch a new channel. So they're starting fresh. They're starting over with a clean slate and rebranding as the Broken Sword. And that is a reference to the Shards of Narsil, of course, being reforged as Andrew. So when you get a chance, go check out their new channel and show them some support. They're really fantastic. They definitely do their homework. And we got another update from Fellowship of the Fans, uh, Insider, who's tweeting some news about the production of the Amazon show. And somehow he got a hand on the contract between Amazon and New Zealand, the country of New Zealand. You know, they have a a large sweeping agreement that covers the production budgets and their partnership over several, several years, which will encompass Lord of the Rings, but also future shows. Um, And this particular agreement was... Uh, relating to marketing plans. And so New Zealand wanted to have some say in the the marketing plans and the timeline. They wanted to do their own marketing. 
And just a couple highlights about this. What it really tells us is that they plan on starting marketing between June and October 2021. So that's, I mean, right now is June and uh, sometime between now and October, they're working on their marketing plans. And <gasps> This is exciting. And then starting in November is when they are supposed to start actually releasing marketing materials and on into 2022. So in November, it looks like we will start seeing, I don't know if it's a trailer, I don't know if it's promos, teasers, whatever it'll be, but we'll start seeing some official marketing getting pushed out from Amazon, which we have been dying for for months and months and months uh, and not getting. So we're really pretty thirsty for this and we're finally going to get it in November. That's right around the corner. Yeah, right around the corner. Although, uh, interestingly, uh, to put a different spin on it, we were speculating in past episodes, well, if they're going to wrap up filming, you know, principal photography in July, August, which was the um, wrap date that Fellowship of the Fans announced um, was was the intended wrap date, we figured, well, if they're going to finish principal photography in August, then we may see the show launch by the end of the year because early speculation was that the show would be sometime this year. So with a wrap date of August, all right, Christmas time, that's perfect. Well, this uh, contract indicates that the timeline is pushed back a little bit later. We're going to start seeing marketing in winter of 2021, so November, um, and we're not going to see the first episodes of the show until 2022. And in fact, this agreement indicates that the latest date by which Amazon is supposed to release the last episode of the show is fall 2022. So if we sort of backtrack that, the latest that we can see the start of the show really is going to be early fall, late summer, 2022. That's, we will see the show by then or before. So it's a little bit later than certainly I was hoping for, but at least now we have a date in mind. We have a timeline, we have a date, it's all really exciting, and this just gives us more time on this podcast to cover all the material that we have planned, because we are shortly going to be watching <laughs> the Peter Jackson movies, as we announced last time, and we have to get through all those films before this comes out, so, you yeah. know, I'm okay with it at this point, and, you know, we will definitely be dissecting those trailers, so, yeah, so yeah something big to look forward to. Yeah, it's probably good that we have a little bit more time, because we were starting to talk about, well, we want do the Peter Jackson films. Can we do them in three episodes? Nah, four? No. It was our no. the amount of time we wanted to take to cover each film kept expanding. And then we're like, are we even going to get through fellowship before the Amazon show uh launches? You know, we were getting kind yeah. of worried about that. But now I think we have enough time, hopefully, to get through all three. I think we're going to get through all three. And I want to put a call out and say, you know, if you want to come on the show, you feel like you know a thing or two about those films, you can always get in touch with us. We we have some exciting guests slated to come on, uh, mm -hmm. but we want to hear from you who you'd like to hear on the show. And if you have ideas about that, you can always write us and stay tuned for exciting announcements to come about our guests. Because there may be some names that you recognize. Yeah. Yeah. We're partnering up with uh, other Tolkien content creators, you know, YouTubers. So if you're a fan of uh, online Tolkien content, you may recognize some of the guests we have um, because they'll be familiar to you through that. Um, we'll be trying to get some scholars, some genuine scholars uh, who've, who've written scholarly works and gone really deep into the legendarium to uh, add an academic bent to some of our episodes. And, and we'll be trying to get some friends of ours, some fun people, maybe people who haven't really gotten into Tolkien, but 
who've seen the movies and have an opinion. You know, we, we really want to have a diverse cast of guests on this show. So again, to echo what Jen said, if you have an idea about someone you would like to join our uh, show as a guest, let us know and um, we'll, we'll consider reaching out to that person and inviting them on. Yes. And speaking of guests, Michael, do you want to do the honors? And Is it time? About- Is it time? I think it's time. I think it's time. All right. I am so excited to welcome our very first guest on this podcast, very first guest ever. And I think it's very appropriate guest, my sister, Heidi. Yay. Welcome. Yay. Yay. Thank you. It's a family affair. (laughs) I am very honored. Well, and Heidi, so we've talked a little bit about my introduction to Tolkien and my story involves you very closely. Uh, Once I had discovered The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you were the one who opened my eyes to the broader world, the Silmarillion and and the the wider legendarium. I mean, I have you to thank for that. Well, I always love talking with you about it. It was like, it was like our secret trust. I could talk about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis with you. And it was just, I was so excited when you caught the bug because I had somebody to talk to about all this stuff. Right. Right. Because Jim was never really, Jim, your husband was never really into it, right? Well, it it was part of our prenup that he had to read <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. It was not thankfully part of our prenup that he had to like it. <laughs> but he 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 went through it. Um and I love him dearly for it. Yep. Love him for it and it's okay. Um oh, it was man. part of my prenup that I had to uh, go to a Chiefs game and I did. <laughs> Fair enough. One one and done and so we're all good. Have you never been to a, a Chiefs game since then? Uh, no, one one was sufficient. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I love it. No, I had of, a great time. The level of Chiefs fandom in your house now, I mean, oh, it yeah. feels like you're at a game every, like every day. I can be a fan without actually having to watch. I'm so with you, Heidi. I, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Exactly. Well, be, before we get much further with this, do I get one of those special AKA names? Because Oh my gosh, absolutely. I'm going to let Michael do the honors mm. since you two are blood family. Oh, well, um, <laughs> I, I have just the name in mind, which is perfect for today. <laughs> you are Encalame, Queen of Numenor, daughter of Arendus and Alderion. No! <laughs> I wanted it. <laughs> I wanted to be Goldberry. Oh, oh, that would okay. have been perfect be for you too. Yeah, oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, you can be Gold. Well, let's let her be Goldberry. I'm going to refer to you as Goldberry the rest of the podcast. An thank exception, you. because you're my sister. You get an exception. The funny, I thing, love- the funny thing is, so we never tell each other in advance what oh. name we're going to give each other. So it's always a surprise. Mm-hmm. And. Um, for today's episode, we you know we did the introduction before you signed on. I named Jen Arendis and she named me Aldarion. So oh, wow. Her and I are, I guess, married <laughs> and, and you are our child. <laughs> this just got real incestuous. <laughs> well, since I ended up being the queen, uh, I, I'll take that. But um, I'd much rather be Goldberry because I think she was happier. Yes, uh, almost certainly <laughs> happier. I think everybody in the legendary was happy. Yes, right. <laughs> there really aren't very many happy people in this yeah. story. But yeah, Michael, um, going back to what you're saying, when 
I was listening to podcast and then you had like the PS at the end, the Havens. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm like, I'm hearing about, I'm hearing my name. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the coolest thing to hear that story. And um, this story about, um, uh, about the Hobbit just showing up on the bookshelf. Uh-huh. That kind of gave me chills because I don't think I put it there. But I, I think the only thing that we can say is that that book was meant to be there, which means that you, Michael, were meant to find it. <laughs> it's the, the hand of Iluvatar at work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, and and I, I remember. I mean, I have we talked about it multiple times. And, you know, you, you say that it was nice when I got into it because you had someone to talk about. Uh, talk to about it. And I had the same feeling because uh, Matthew eventually read it, but he never got into it to the level I did. And no one else in the family read it. I don't think my parents mm-hmm. have read it to this day. No one else got into it. So um, you were, you know, my Tolkien buddy in the family. <laughs> and I have a very strong memory. Even We talked about it multiple times, but I feel like this was the first time I remember sitting in our living room. I remember, I think you were sitting in my dad's easy chair recliner. I was sitting in uh, like a kitchen table chair that had been moved in the living room. And you just started telling me about the Silmarillion. And you really, you know, walked through the history of Arda, you know, in pretty great detail. I mean, we sat there, if I recall, talking for quite a while. And I feel like I was eating it up. And I wonder if you remember, you know, maybe – Tales grow taller in the telling, and maybe you know my memory is a little different. I wonder if you remember it the same way. I don't. <laughs> I don't remember it at all. But I have a terrible memory. I believe you. I do remember uh, sending, giving you a copy of the Silmarillion. I think it was, or maybe it was Lost Tales when you graduated college. Because like now I, you don't have to read all your assignments. You can, or maybe it was grad school, but. I think it was I think it was the unfinished tales yes. and it is the same <laughs> copy that I still read and that I was reading in preparation yeah. for this episode. Yeah. Wow. Um, I love that it bond you two are bonded Aww. in that way. Like you have it's so nice to find other Tolkien lovers because you have that shared lexicon language. You don't have to explain. You just kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'm all about other people giving <laughs> yes. it a shot, it's so great that to to find these connections within your own family. That's 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 really great. And the twisted road has led us to this day. Yes, <laughs> it brought us here. Uh, and I feel like it really, I, I've heard a lot of people say that they tried to read the Silmarillion like when they were too young. They'd read the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. but then they tried to dive into the Silmarillion and they're like, I don't get it. And they, and mm-hmm. they couldn't dive back into it until they were an adult. Or, or, I didn't have mm-hmm. that problem at all. I remember, and this is not like a humble brag or anything, but like when I was, as soon as you told me about the Silmarillion and I got a copy of it, I dove right into it. I, I was in high school, maybe junior high, late junior high when I got it. And um, I just remember loving it right off the bat. And I was trying to figure out why did I take to it and not have the same mm. problems with it that a lot of people experience? Because I mean, I, I fancy myself a relatively intelligent person, but I'm not like more intelligent than than other people really. But I think a lot of it had to do with you telling me in sort of oral history fashion the history of the Silmarillion. So I kind of had this broad overview in my head. I had experienced it that way. And so I was able to dive into the sometimes dense prose of, of Tolkien and, you know, he uses archaic language. I was able to dive into that and not get sidetracked by the things I didn't understand because you had given me that overview. That's kind of my working theory. You focused on the story. 
Right. Uh, right. If, if I can share one Michael memory, um, I remember telling you these, when you talk about these things and then you'd come up to me during the day and you'd be like, you really had, had thought about it. You could tell that you're like your mind had been chewing on it and you come up and say, well, but the, why did this happen? Or, or, or what happened after this? Or, you know, what came next? And, and I would just, sometimes in my big sisterly fashion would not want to admit that I didn't know. I may or may not have been above making some things up <laughs> in order to provide the answers. Um, but you also got me to go back and look things up because you were asking really good questions. So I guess that explains if I ever have any, uh, if I ever say anything in this podcast that isn't accurate, it's, uh, fault. if it's not canon, it's, it's Heidi's head canon. That's right. You know who to blame. Well, Heidi, without further ado, are you up for doing a little segment that we like to call the One Breath Summary? <sighs> yes, before we go much further. Okay. So you get to tackle gonna, the um, whole story, the whole Mariner's <laughs> Wife story. Okay. I have been practicing. I have made it through on one breath once. Uh, so I might have to cheat just a little bit in, again, big sisterly fashion, but I'm willing <laughs> to give it, it a shot. Okay. Ready? You're <clears throat> ready. <laughs> in Numenor, King Minelder says, stay. Prince Eldarion sells off anyway. Dad says, you'll be king someday. Eldarion meets Arendis and says, hey. Arendis says, go away. Then on a sacred mountain, she says, okay. Twelve years later, they get married. Elves bring gifts. Eldarion dreams of ships. Arendis says, read my lips. No new trips. He says, I insist. See you in two years tops. Two years go by. Arendis is pissed. Three years later, Eldarion's back. Where's my wife and girl? Arendis lives in her own man-free world. He's a churl. She's a churl. He lives in a world, by the way. He goes back in the world. Dad says, my boy, here's the crown. All that is your problem now. P.S. Daughter and Calame grows up hating men. King Eldarion sets off for Middle Earth again, and the sea gets horrendous in the end. Wow! That was amazing. Oh my that gosh! Was amazing. You should do our one breath summary that was every incredible. time. And it was oh my gosh, it was beautiful. It was so poetic and like perfect. You delivered was, you delivered it in meter and rhyme. That is meter perfect. and rhyme. Excellent. Well, Excellent. I, it was not in one breath, I must confess. But, you know, if I had done a few more push-ups before, then maybe I would have been in, you know. The oh, you get more fighting from The rules are squishy. <laughs> Thank you. My two-breath summary. Oh, beautiful. That was fun. That was, well, you just raised the bar for, the, for these summaries in the future. future. guests yeah. are in trouble, yeah. <laughs> Inspiration. Tolkien inspires all of us. Tolkien inspires all. Well, we're going to break down uh, a lot of what Heidi went over. So we are going <laughs> to we're going to talk about uh, the portion of the narrative that Christopher Tolkien took over. So he has now taken charge of the narrative. And by that, we mean, you know, the finished narrative he's able to find written by his father was, was done. But there were still notes and snippets and uh, things that he was able to piece together. Not enough to add to the quote unquote completed narrative but enough for him to indicate where certain plot lines were, were going. Um, and so th there are multiple plot lines in certain points, uh, but we're just going to kind of summarize these. And uh, it mostly has to do with Ancalame. And uh, then we're going to go back and, and take a look at the broader themes of the entire story. So where we left off um, was really the tipping point in Aldarian and Arendis's relationship. It, they really were done. Mm -hmm. Aldarian had become king. Um, an elder had stepped down 
um, surrendered the scepter to his son, knowing that war was on the horizon. And Arendis, by way of, you know, basically broke up with Eldarion by email. Uh, it wasn't really a breakup, but uh, it was, a, you know, I'm not going to come to the capital. Uh, and Eldarion kind of realized, boy, we are really done. Arendis is a, in his view, has sunk low. And, and that's kind of just where the, the narrative ends. So we don't know exactly what happened with Gilgalad and, and Ancalame in the Finnish narrative. Uh, but according to Christopher Tolkien, at this point, Aldarian sails for Middle-earth again, shortly after taking the throne, knowing that work needs to be done with Gilgalad. Uh, and many times throughout his life, he does this. At one point, it's mentioned that he perhaps encounters Galadriel. Um, darkness is growing in the east. But Aldarian's subjects are not particularly thrilled that he is leaving so frequently, uh, it being typical in Numenor for the king to stay in Numenor. And the need to have frequent trips, uh, his love of being a mariner was really kind of unique. Um, they are a seafaring people, but the king is typically not a mariner um, in the way that he is. So him constantly leaving Numenor is a, is a it's suggested that it's a point of conflict. Uh, and it's unusual for the people. Um, so whenever he leaves, a regent is appointed to rule in his stead. There's no further uh, mention of his alliance with Gilgalad, but we do learn that ultimately all, and this is a quote, all Aldarian's labors were swept away, end quote. Uh, Vinyalonde, the haven that he thought was so important, was ultimately never completed. All of his projects were not completed, and this he sort of started to eat away at his work there. Uh, Christopher Tolkien goes on to tell us that the rest of Ancalame's upbringing is uncertain, but that as an adult, she possessed attributes of both Arendis and Aldarion. I'm going to read a passage here that really illustrates that. And not the best qualities either. Mm-mm. Yeah. Do they have any good qualities for her to adopt? <laughs> Not that I've been really explored. <laughs> and I'll quickly mention that if this is adapted, I really, I think it'd be perfect to see that interaction with Galadriel. Just a little side note. Oh, totally. I mean, I think that if Aldarian Arendis is depicted, um, I think we've talked about this before, that he will sort of be our guide through Middle Earth because he's a mariner. Mm-hmm. He'll be our introduction to Gilgalad and Perhaps it'll be our introduction to Galadriel and mm-hmm. Elrond and other, you know, Círdan, certainly. Um, he might be our sort of our narrator. The way it's sort of in the way that the hobbits are our guide through Middle-earth and Lord of the Rings and our introduction to the wider world and the, the world of the sort of ethereal otherworldly elves. Aldarion might be that for us in this show. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, that would be fantastic. And Calame, like her father, was resolute in pursuing her policies. And like him, she was obstinate taking the opposite course to any that was counseled. She had something of her mother's coldness and sense of personal injury. And deep in her heart, almost but not quite forgotten, was the firmness with which Eldarion had unclasped her hand and set her down when he was in haste to be gone. And later it also says that when she was queen, or that she resolved that when she was queen, she would, quote, live where and how she pleased. Right, and it is also says in the text that she has a profound dislike of obligatory marriage. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and in marriage of any constraint on her will. And her mother has spoken unceasingly against men. She's very embittered. She's very angry. So men, I'm going to read a quote, and then we're going to talk about it with you, Heidi, and get some of your thoughts on the character of Von Calame. Um, But... Yeah, I'm gonna. This read is an this incredible chunk. passage too. This is an incredible. We're gonna read a monologue for, um, that Arendis says to Ancalame. Ooh, so. 
Yes. And it, oh, can I read it? Oh, absolutely, Heidi. Oh, Take okay. it away. I love that the you know exactly thing. what we're talking about. The whole about. thing. Yeah, you, you're talking the whole about thing. her screed against men, right? The oh, one yeah. Where she's, yes. Okay. Read All the right. whole thing. Men in Numenor are half-elves, said Arendus. Especially the high men. They are neither the one nor the other. The long life that they were granted deceives them, and they dally in the world, children in mind, until age finds them. And then many only forsake play out of doors for play in their houses. They turn their play into great matters and great matters into play. They would be craftsmen and lore masters and heroes all at once. And women to them are but fires on the hearth for others to tend until they are tired of play in the evening. All things were made for their service. Hills are for quarries, rivers to furnish water, to turn wheels, trees for boards, women for their bodies need, or if fair, to adorn their table and hearth, and children to be teased when nothing else is to do. But they would as soon play with their hounds' whelps. To all they are gracious and kind, merry as larks in the morning if the sun shines, for they are never wrathful if they can avoid it. Men should be gay, they hold generous as the rich, giving away what they do not need. Anger they show only when they become aware suddenly that there are other wills in the world beside their own. Then they will be as ruthless as the sea wind if anything dare to withstand them. Thus it is in, in Calame, and we cannot alter it. For men fashioned Numenor, men those heroes of old that they sing of. <laughs> of their women we hear less, save that they wept when their men were slain. Numenor was to be a rest after war. But if they weary of rest and the plays of peace, soon they will go back to their great play, man-slaying and war. Thus it is, and we are set here among them, but we need not assent. If we love Numenor also, let us enjoy it before they ruin it. We also are daughters of the great, and we have wills and courage of our own. Therefore, do not bend, Ancalame. Once bend a little, and they will bend you further until you are bowed down. Sink your roots into the rock, and face the wind, though it blow away all your leaves. Uh, what a fantastic uh, reading. Very well done, yeah, nice, first of Very all. nicely read, yes. Nicely read, um, and second I, of all, I was able to bring out my, you know, my my inner shrew. <laughs> <laughs> Your inner shrew. Well, that's an interesting choice of words, Heidi. Interesting choice of words, um, because I have a lot of different thoughts about this monologue, and I I feel like we are meant to see what a bitter old true she is, but I actually think that there's a lot of truth in this monologue and a lot that resonates with perhaps a modern take on feminism. Although feminism is broad, feminists can't even agree on a definition of feminism because it's we know it's very um, it's a very large, broad world and people feel differently about it. Um, but I'm curious to hear if you have specific thoughts on this on this monologue oh, and the well, character of horrendous generally. First of all, I, I did put shrew, I was thinking air quotes <laughs> around it. Oh, okay. that. <laughs> and also because of um, we talked previously, Jen, about your portraying, being in the play Taming of the Shrew. So that was on my yes. mind, um, <laughs> which is wonderful. But uh, 
Yes. And I think exactly that any time that a woman expresses um, discontent with the status quo, that it, that mm-hmm. she's ascribed that quality of being a shrew, and it's it's only said to be said out of done out of bitterness, out of um, you know, kind of sour grapes. Well, you, you can't out the short end of the stick, so you're just going to complain about it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's actually one thing it, it struck me as I was reading it just now was actually how prophetic it was, because she was mm-hmm. saying that um, this part about you know they grow weary of rest and the plays of peace, and soon they will go back to their great play, manslaying and war, and. That's what exactly what happens at the end of the narrative is mm-hmm. the shadow of war is upon them. And that is why Aldarian is made king so that he can make decisions and prepare for war. Oh, yes, exactly. And I think, like, as you mentioned, she has really legitimate gripes in this monologue, which is that men built this world, men control the narrative and where 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 are the women? Do we hear from them? Um, which is which is true. And regardless of the author's own thoughts on and intentions behind this, it for me it, it smacks of um, it smacks of true true sentiment and, and female discontent in in many ways. Um, but she also speaks of um, ha- of being having wills of their own and courage of their own and their own unique voice. Um, which I think, so I think that this cannot be seen as an entirely negative monologue. Oh, absolutely. And the other irony here is that a lot of what she's saying about the creation of Numenor is what feminist critics say about Tolkien's writings as a whole, that it's Mm -hmm. constructed with men in mind. Uh, It's, it's kind of written by men for men. In fact, um, one person pointed out that there are more named horses than women (laughs) in the whole Lord of the Ring trilogy. Uh, And Mm -hmm. women really take a back seat. Mm -hmm. um, And, you see that Numenor is literally, although Numenor was not, it was created for men. Um, but, you know, the, if you go back, you know, in creation of the, the Valar, there's fem- the feminine, the femininity of mm-hmm. its creation is also evident and kind of flow, flows through the whole mythos of the island as well. Um, and it's when, and, and so I think the tragic thing is that the conclusion that she draws at the end is do not bend, uh, you know, face the wind and do not bend. And it's, again, it's kind of setting up two pillars rather than, um, you know, male and female as two competing forces that either bash each other or stand apart rather than, you know, maybe an, an image of an arch or a synthesis. Um, hmm. And that right. is part of what leads, I think, to the to the fall of the of Numenor. And I, I think that is ultimately the moral of, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but what I think probably the moral of the story is is that Tolkien thinks that that it's critical to the happiness of men and women to be able to get along and have a good relationship, and it's critical to having a good relationship to be able to bend and, as you say, you form that synthesis and. Uh, the tragedy of Arendus and Alderion is is that neither of them will bend, um, neither of them will give in to the other, and um, I, you know, there's a lot of things that this story could be about that it says about relationships and gender, but I, I think that that is the underlying message that Tolkien is trying to explore at its root. Um, 
I think that sort of piggyback on something you said about uh, Jen about how this passage um, you think is meant to convey that Arendus is you know shrewish maybe you know it's it's not meant to paint Arendus in a good light but I think this is a perfect example of of a text um, which is often the case for all kinds of novels that can be read many different ways by different people mm. I mean I mm-hmm. I especially with Tolkien fans, I think really try and bend over backwards to figure out what is this supposed to mean? What did Tolkien mean? And I think Mm -hmm. when reading Tolkien, just like with reading any other author, um, it can be interesting and useful to our engagement with the text to try and figure out what maybe Tolkien's intention was. But I don't think that's the point of literature to just, it's, it's not a sort of mathematical type of uh, endeavor literature is something that engages with your audience and your audience is always changing and your audience has different points of view and they're going to interpret it differently. And it doesn't mean that they're interpreting it wrong because part of the point of literature is to impact your audience and however it makes you feel, whatever it makes you think about based on your own unique experience, that's like a a legitimate way to read it and to experience the text. And so I think you're right. I mean, to get, this is all preamble to kind of a meta question Prior to this passage, Christopher Tolkien is the one who I think describes the text in a way like he interprets it to be a remarkable example of horrendous hating men. So um, it's I think it's Christopher Tolkien's text immediately before it where he says, her mother had spoken unceasingly against men and indeed a remarkable example of Arendus's teaching in this respect is preserved. And so the tone of that comment, he's interpreting it that way, that Arendus, that this is kind of a negative um, example of of Renes's character. But without that preamble, I mean, you could read this and it is almost like a scathing rebuke of the patriarchy. You know, you could, you could read it that way. A lot of what is being said here, it's like, yeah, screw the patriarchy, you know, like I'm putting my fist in the air when I, when I, when I read this and I don't necessarily read this as being like, Oh, Renes is, is a bitter old true. You know, I'm reading it like a lot of what she's saying, you know, and you said this, Jen, a lot of what she's saying is very right. And so you can read this like in different ways and it kind of depends on who the reader is. Also that there's this, this is a good example of how the, the personal and, you know, if I use the word systemic or structural are intertwined. So there is Arendis's own story, her own personal narrative, um, which has planted seeds of bitterness in her and hurt, deep woundedness. Mm. And she's a broken spirit. Um, and laid alongside that is the inequities of the system as male-female gender relationships in Numenor as a whole. Um, mm. And you know, you don't want to say that one is a microcosm of the other because her story is her story. It's not a fable or an allegory of you know feminist uh, issues in general. Um, but it is an illustration of how each individual is part of this larger structure story system um, and then draws their conclusions about the structure based on their own experience. Because um, uh, uh, Aldarion also had comments about the role of women in the system and he him, he felt injured also by gender relationship. So he had a point of view that was the inverse of hers. And it wasn't just like, it, so he wasn't like, yay, I'm the beneficiary of this wonderful system that gives me all this privilege. He himself saw himself as the victim sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, and that's both a product of 
of his personality and also the larger story in which he found himself. Right. I think that's very well put, Heidi, in that we can't just boil it down to gender. Like there's so their perspective, there's experience within their system is also equally um, important in the way that they behave and in the way that they choose because they do both make conscientious choices about their their attitudes and their responses to their woundedness. Mm-hmm. And there's certain claims in that culture that each that each gender, each partner was supposed to make on one another. And so I think part of the struggle that they both have is 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 any type of claim on me, external claim on my individuality, um, can there be justice in that? Can it be life-giving to me it, to surrender part of my life to another? And you've discussed these themes throughout. Um, and so, you know, both in marriage, but then also in social relationships. And they both come to, seem to come to the same answer that, no, I, my life is is... Even if I would trade my happiness for my independence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually, as I was reading, uh, rereading this, another narrative, another female narrative kept popping into my mind. And I kept comparing this with Eowyn. Um, mm. Yeah. And, you know, the famous quote that Eowyn says when Aragorn asks her, I'm reading it, what do you fear, lady? And Eowyn answers, a cage to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire and ironically the person in this story who most echoes Eowyn's fear is um is uh Alderion <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah I was like, you're so right. Yes, Aldarian, the person who most echoes Eowyn's fear is Aldarian because he says, don't put me in a cage, woman. (laughs) I am afraid that you, my my greatest fear is that I, you are going to put bars around my essential being, who I am. I got to be me. Right. Just gotta be me. Like if this was a, a musical, this is where he'd break out into that song and dance. I just gotta be me. <laughs> Don't tie me yeah. down. <laughs> it's like, well, thank goodness that it's not a musical. Oh, that we know. That's what I gotta say. Don't put ideas in my head. <laughs> Got no oh, strings on me. <laughs> well, the um, the narrative goes on to describing Calamy as an adult. And it's not particularly flattering. She (laughs) begins to split her time between her mother and her father. Um, And and it's interesting. In every instance where it describes Encalame's developing character, it seems to suggest that she inherited elements of both, that she she hated the conflict and yet also understood both of their point of view and enjoyed it. It's it's a bizarre sort of internal cognitive dissonance that seems to be developing in in, in Encalame. But she... When spending time in the capital, Aldarian's mother, the queen, sort of dotes on her. And um, the text states that as she grew older, she became ever more willful. And she found irksome the company of Arendus, who behaved like a widow and would not be queen. But she continued to return to Amerie, both as a retreat from Armenelos and because she desired thus to vex Aldarion. She was clever and malicious and saw promise of sport as the prize for which her mother and her father did battle. 
typical child of divorce. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, it's a rough. I mean, she's playing the parents off each other. And... Right, mm-hmm. right. I mean, it's that's. I mean, clever and malicious. I don't know that you could conjure a more negative description from Tolkien's mouth. I mean, not not somebody I would invite to my birthday party. No, mm-hmm. no. Although obviously it is a product of the sort of poison relationship between Eldarion and Arendis, so we should be sympathetic. But um, exactly. Right. You know, maybe we can be sympathetic to her as a child and as a young woman, but as she grows up and grows up, eventually you stop being sympathetic and because she becomes sort of poisoned and poisonous in her own way. Um, but before we get there, the text is tell us that Alderion changes the law of succession. So this is a very interesting and I think very important point to our discussion mm-hmm. today that in Numenor previously, the law was only men could inherit the scepter. Uh, Eldarion, knowing that he was not going to have another child with Arendis, uh, changes the law, allowing women to rule. And at age 19, he proclaims Arendis his heir. And interestingly, Eldarion also changes the law to state that the king's heir should only marry another from the line of Elros. Uh, and that if they don't do that, they would lose the crown. And this was uh, a result of, of him blaming his disastrous marriage on Arendis not being up a line of Elros, which had been kind of a tradition before, but never one that was uh, in the law uh, or made official or binding in any way. So, you know, he ignored that tradition. They got married and he's blaming their troubles on that. Um, I think that, I think that we can all agree it was not that, <laughs> but uh such a lack of personal responsibility. I, I'm inter- yeah, I'm interested to hear what you two think this that aspect of it means. I think I think it's a tragic failure to be, be introspective about the role, the part that he played in their <laughs> demise. Mm. And Aldarian, you know, that is that is his trouble. Is he? I think there's one line near the end of the marriage where he said, "Is if black is my." bane if if this is what i have wrought like if this behavior is my fault like he does take that tiny bit of ownership but other than that he's somebody who is so i think very blind to his his flaws and is is not ever able to take personal ownership or accountability um over the part he plays and and that's part of his major character flaw so i i want to propose a different interpretation of that I think I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you that that's how I read it, but trying to approach it from the perspective that it can be read in different ways. So I'm thinking through what universe is this set in? This is set in a universe Tolkien's created where kingship passes through bloodlines mm-hmm. um, in, with astonishing regularity and consistency in his legendarium. You know, that's the system that he created. And in this world, he intends for it to work. Um he doesn't anywhere, you know, criticize that method of governance or of choosing kings. It, it just sort of that's how things are, and it's never questioned. Um, and in many ways, those who are considered high and those who are considered low, it's always a reference to the bloodline. You know, the blood of Numenor is is all but spent. It's a quote from the the movie. Um, but bloodlines are really, really important, and he never questions it. And so, right. with that perspective, looking at this. I wonder if Tolkien is actually thinking to himself that it was in part to blame that hmm. he should have stayed within the bloodline of Elros, kept the bloodlines pure. Um, Interesting. Because there's, I can't think of any other example in the legendarium where 
um, there's a sort of a breaking of bloodlines or where, you know, the hmm. king, the kingship passes to someone of a different bloodline and it's okay. I mean, think about in Gondor when the last king who's a legitimate heir is dies or goes right. missing, there's no other king. They, they elect a steward. Like right. name another um, uh, culture in real earth where there's never a king and someone just holds power and stewardship for the true king. I mean, people seize power all the time. If there's a vacancy, someone fills that void and becomes king themselves. That doesn't ever happen. But in this universe, bloodlines well, are so very important. It's really hard to, it's really hard to hear that through our modern sensibilities and especially mm-hmm. our American modern sensibilities. Right. Exactly. We, we just bristle at hierarchy <laughs> yes. and, and, you know, bloodline. Nobility. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're cheering, we're cheering for the underdog. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Well, oh, there, yeah. But you're right. It probably is a very modernist take. Right. That's a, that's a good point. And there's, there's an interesting interview that you can find. I forget the details, but there's an interview um, of Tolkien later in his life. I think it might be in sometime in the sixties, and the interviewer asks him this question, you know, in your universe, power is passed down through bloodlines almost consistently. Why is that? And do you think in in the real world that that's the way to do things? And Tolkien, you know, from this, I kind of take that Tolkien wasn't really that serious of a, you know, political theorist. He was very thoughtful in many ways and about many things, including politics, I'm sure. But he just kind of said, well, I think that that system probably works as good as any. <laughs> It was kind of his response. Uh, you know, he, he answered basically, yes, I think that would that works fine. It works, works fine for England. And what's the problem with it? You know, it worked as good as any system of governance we've ever had. And that kind of like shocked me because, it, again, it like just it, it grates my American sensibilities. They're not even American, just modern sensibilities. Um, it seems so wrong. <laughs> that, that quote about it, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible right, system right, except right. for all the others. So, it, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. So others, um, right. I just thought I'd point that out. You know, I, wa- I wonder what Tolkien really meant. You know, I wonder well, if he was. I think it's a good point. He was a medievalist mm-hmm. and he wrote in that style. Right. Right. You know? <laughs> and that shows up a lot in medieval literature. So you, you may be you may very well be right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to just wrap up the the last few fragments of the narrative so just to get through the brass tacks of what happens and Calame flees the capital at one point to escape from wagging tongues and too much attention placed on her um that was my reading of it you guys can chime in if you disagree um because it's a little bit ambiguous why she flees the capital but she she goes into hiding and her whereabouts are only known to her mother. So she is hiding out in Amerie, where her mother is. Um, and while she's there, she falls in love with the, she- the shepherd boy that we heard about earlier. So they have this, this whirlwind romance. Um, and he actually turns out to be the son of Aldarion's close friend. <laughs> and he is actually of the line of Elros. Do you think, do you think if um, they adapt this, we're going to see slow-mo... Uh, and Calame and this boy running towards each other in the field, through sheep fields. and then with like I sheep hope. bleeding. One can only hope. Yeah, I, I want a slow mo <laughs> running through the field shot. I want it. <laughs> if I could say some, just one thing about the adaptation, and I was thinking about this in terms of um, you know, again, this relates, Michael, to your point about and, and Jen about modern sensibilities versus the, through the lens that Tolkien was writing, and a lot of what what Tolkien says through, you know, Arendus is 
was revolutionary, could have been revolutionary in his day. And we don't know if he meant it sarcastically, if it was like, you know, commentary, his own, his own view, how much of this is his view versus was he trying to give feminism a bad name by putting in the, in the mouth of this character who is obviously so unsympathetic. But to say those things uh, through the mouth of a character now, yeah, uh, men, you know, kind of rule the world and think they're the boss and don't let, you know, just want to use women and, and have them, you know, cook and clean for them and then not pay attention to them when they're uh -huh. It's like, yeah, ha -ha, <laughs> right. what else is new? <laughs> this is going to be like, oh my gosh, that is so, yeah, go so back to 1920s. We've heard all this before. <laughs> and is it, so how are they going to portray um, these back then feminist ideals um, back then revolutionary language and have it have it not actually sound patronizing I, I have I have two things to say about that um, the first is sort of a question um, sometimes we know how the author thinks about what a character is saying by looking at the character's mouth that they put it in right so if uh, an evil villain that we are supposed to detest and hate in a story espouses a certain view, more like than not, the author does not ascribe to that particular view. Um, and vice versa, if a hero says something, that's probably what the author thinks is, is the truth or the good thing. Consider that this, one of you called it a screed, um, but this, this speech by Arendis that I think is very consistent with our modern notions of about feminism and women's rights and the patriarchy is being put in the mouth of Orendus, who at this point is a very embittered, damaged character. And I'm not necessarily making a, a conclusive point on this because Orendus is a complex character. We're also, I mean, she's also been hurt. We sympathize with her. She's not the villain. I don't think either Aldarian or Orendus are the villain or the hero, mm -mm. but it is being spoken by Orendus at a time in the narrative after she's been sort of, I don't know, beaten down and hurt so much that she's in a very embittered place and in a state that is, um, it's very sad to see. And I don't know how to feel about this. And I don't know what Tolkien meant. I'm just kind of posing the question based on uh, it coming out of horrendous. Wh what do you think that means? I think it's psychological realism to a degree that we very rarely see in Tolkien's writings um, in this, mm. you know, especially this one oh, so poignant phrase where he says he's describing um, and kill and I cannot pronounce names. I am so mm -hmm. sorry. Um, and Calame. Um, yeah. And so he's describing and Calame and he says like, she almost, mm. but didn't quite ever forget the feeling of her father's oh, hand. Right, right. Her, you know, her father setting her aside. Yeah. And so you just see that, that, that wound. And we, we know now more, you know, about the psychology of what happens to children when they're abandoned and, you know, how mm -hmm. hurt people hurt people um, and how childhood trauma oh, yeah. carries with people all through their lives. And so we can that he was so prescient in that. Um, and, and so I wonder if he was not necessarily making so much a commentary on society, but as a commentary on I mean, from his point of view, was this a commentary on how brokenness um, just poisons everything? Oh, that's so interesting. I think yeah. that's such a good point. I, that's that's a great point. And I think my reading it of it has always been, this is a story about a broken relationship. Mm -hmm. 
it's not a commentary. It's mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely not a feminist story. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't know that you could make that argument. I mean, maybe you I could. agree. I don't think that it is a feminist story in the way that we would conceive of it now. But I think it is absolutely about a about wounded people and broken relationships. Um, I, I think I agree the with reasons behind that. Both of you absolutely in that regard because it would be so inconsistent for Tolkien to write a story that is like strongly allegorical or intended to be just <clears throat> about a political theory. Um, so if, if we were to try too hard to to read into this, like, well, he's making a comment about feminism or he's making a comment about the patriarchy, that's kind of just not what Tolkien did. Um, I mean, he talks about in the foreword to The Lord of the Rings that he just wanted to write a story about people that would touch people. And, um, you know, you can apply it to your own life as you will, but it's not meant to be a commentary on anything. And and I think that probably is the case with the story as can well. Can I raise one more theory? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No. no. Um, but here, this is part of the unfinished tales. Mm-hmm. And so, Michael, what you were just saying now about, I just want to write stories, uh, made me think this. And that is that maybe this part, this, this polemic, uh, was never intended to be part of the finished manuscript. You know how sometimes you just got to mm-hmm. vent? <laughs> you just mm. have to, you know, you just write and you're just getting it out of your system and you can imagine somebody saying something and you just follow it down. You're just the last, you follow the path, but then you look at it, you look back on you're like, okay, I got that out. You know, I needed it kind right. of process, but now I'm going to cut it down to, you know, two or three sentences, take a page of, of, you know, journal writing and cut it down to the quick. And so I'm curious, I mean, we'll never know, but had he finished the story, how right. much of that speech would have remained would in, have the, made it in, in the final product? It almost yeah, because re- he was notorious for rewriting. Mm-hmm. He was reworking characters mm-hmm. up until his death. Right. Like days before mm-hmm. he passed away, mm-hmm. he was he was fleshing wow. out Galadriel. He was fleshing out all these different characters. Right. So that's a, that's a really good point. And this speech really does read like horrendous, very clearly and articulately describing to Ankalamai everything that she thinks, um, which mm-hmm. she has not done. And she hasn't been that articulate about her own feelings to any other person throughout the story. And people don't really tend to do that, <laughs> you know, very clearly with so much self-awareness say what they feel about things. So it's almost like uh, maybe Tolkien was engaging kind of a writing exercise. I'm going to chart out the scene where Arendis is talking to Ankalamai and just saying all the things that she feels and then sort of through that exercise he's like okay so this is how Arendis feels about things and then he can go back and actually write the character because right. that last line about, about don't bend <laughs> that's that's the punchline right. Mm-hmm. right so yeah the the second um the second thought that i had heidi when you you know you're talking about when we see this adapted um you know, and whether this sort of speech, how it would land in today's modern day and age, because it's it's kind of it's not revolutionary anymore. So it made me think of the fact. I don't know if you have um, see what's being said online by Tolkien fans, what kind of conversation is going on. But um, the Tolkien fandom is like many fandoms, and like our country is kind of split about expectations for the show. <laughs> um, you know, there's a contingent. Where would be the fun if we weren't? Right. Right. <laughs> And, you know, there's a contingent of folks who are very afraid that Amazon, uh, being a modern company with modern goals (laughs) that, you know, 
as part of their you know charter, we're going to care about diversity. We're going to think about these things. We're going to think about those issues as we make shows. And Amazon has said very explicitly that that's part of how they're um, making decisions when creating new media for their shows, including Lord of the Rings. There's a contingent of Tolkien fans that are very, very afraid of what that means. You know, you know, don't put your woke politics into my Tolkien. I mean, like, kind of like, are they going to Anne with an E it? Mm-hmm. I haven't actually watched the new Anne with an E, but I know it. I know it should be right. modernized, right? Change things, and and so I could see it's very interesting. I mean, Amazon could very faithfully adapt this story and include this speech, and I think that Tolkien fans who are big Tolkien fans but maybe not familiar with this particular story would think that Amazon is making up. <laughs> How dare you put these words in yeah, Tolkien's mouth? Yeah, that would be funny. <laughs> so, but I wonder if, you know, right. it would start a conversation and maybe some of those folks would go back and read the story and realize, oh, this is actually from Tolkien. You know, he did have some of these thoughts or, and did, at least That's in this exactly story, engage with those say. issues. That's exactly what I was going to say is this doesn't need a single thing. Like my argument is like, you know, be true to the intent of the author in this case. But also we are still making works like Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen's works in their original form. Like there have been a few Mm -hmm. adaptations with some some modern twists, but but barely. They're really not going overboard. They're not taking great liberties. And a lot of times it's it is the same story that that uh, rings of truth in some capacity and um, is just a classic tale of a relationship. I think we're still hungry for that. And I also think um, I also think that this would be something that people would grapple with as is. Um, right. People would enjoy as is. So I, I don't think it needs a single thing, whether or not it would remain in its uh, original form. I think it's going to inspire a, a firestorm of criticism yeah. and, you know, <laughs> debates on Twitter. And I mean, people are people are going to have a lot of opinions. So, Bring it! You know, maybe it's <laughs> right. ho-hum to, well, to half of uh, America, but um, there's still plenty of folks. Who, well, one thing I really love about, so. about the, the feminism in this piece is that this is not feminism that is expressed uh, through martial arts you know, through prowess on the mm. battlefield, because a lot of, a lot of them make, they make, um, you know, kind of hay out of Eowyn's, um, you know, slaying of, of the dark Kings and, you know, her, she reveals herself to be a shield maiden and she's just, you know, she's great with a sword. And so thus she is empowered. And I, what is kind of a more subtle empowerment um, that um, Arendis displays is that, she, the, the the fault in the relationship is so clearly the both of mm-hmm. them that she exercises real power. She has the power to make her life and her husband's life and her daughter's life miserable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so and he and he has reciprocal power. They are equal in that regard in that they both have the capacity to they had the capacity to bend. They chose not to. And so they both exercised you know, their power to make one another miserable. And so, yay, they are truly empowered. Right. Um, and I don't think we see that side of what it means to be um, empowered, very often, like relational power. Hmm. You know, power is not always come um, through a sword. Yeah, that's a really good point. And she is she is trying to impart um, some of that onto Anne Calame in in this last bit of her monologue. Once bend a little, and they will bend you further until you are bowed down, sink your roots deep into the rock. You know, don't bend. She's trying to say, she's trying to give her advice to spare her the pain that she experienced, um, even if it's bad advice. But she's yeah, she's passing that that on to her daughter. That idea 
of relational, taking that power back. Taking that power back. Can I ask you, this is kind of a little bit of a change of topic, but can I ask you both a question? Um, there are no questions on this surprised... podcast. No questions. <laughs> no. Just statement. <laughs> I will assert, I will make an assertion in the form of a question. Were you as surprised as I was uh, up in your first reading at the twist um, of the rise of the shadow and how all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's this, you know, tale about two people and it's about love and it's about, you know, this intimate psychological drama. And then boom, all of a sudden we're back right. in the, the grand tale of Middle Earth. Um, and I did not see that coming. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Yeah. I had forgotten that, that there, there was any linkage whatsoever to the broader story. I... Believe it or not, I was kind of waiting for it only because he loves, Tolkien loves to do that. He loves to, he that's part of his genius is tying everything together in such an, an intricate manner that I'm, I am always surprised by it. But I, I do now that I know that I look for it usually in his work. So, I mean, I'm continually impressed that he's able to do that. I construct such thorough narratives that all tie in together but but you're right that is the really surprising thing about this is like um oh it it all it all relates back you know and we're back in the main story again and, and i think <laughs> that if amazon adapts this story we will see way more tie-ins we will see mm -hmm. a farm you know we were kind of lamenting the fact that this because this if it's depicted in this in the amazon show it's not its own um miniseries which means the focus won't be as much on just this love story. It'll be one story among a multitude. Um, woven in. Woven right. in, which, you know, it can be, that can be done well and maybe you don't lose anything, but um, there won't be a single story focused on these issues. And so we were kind of lamenting that, but at the same time, it'll be interesting to see how they figure that out and untie those knots and, and, and weave everything together, um, you know, doing what Tolkien hadn't gotten to. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if they include and Colomay's further story because right. she does. There's mm. quite there's quite a bit. Um, there's quite a bit about her, which is that you know she falls in love. She marries the shepherd who is of the line of Elros, um, but she's but they have a terrible unhappy union. Um, <laughs> she begrudges. Surprise! Yeah, right. surprise! Surprise! They also have a tortured <laughs> union. They're very unhappy. It says she begrudges her husband, her son, Anarion. She did not want a son. So when she has a son, she begrudges this. Um, and there was strife between them ever after. And I think, I, I think I'm just going to read um, that passage really quickly because it's relevant. Well, one thing that she says that I love is that she said, if I were free to wed whom I will, that would be Uner, which is no man. <laughs> Whom I prefer above all others. So does that mean she wants to marry Eowyn? <laughs> exactly. I am no I am man. No man. <laughs> That's right. But it does show how um, how she has progressed, uh, differs from her mom, because her mother says, I do not want to be married to the sea. And then Alcalami turns that around and she says, I will marry no, no man. So she's mm. just... A, a titch um, more bold than her mom. <laughs> so, however this may be, the story is clear that Encolame did not desire love, nor did she wish for a son. And she said, must I become like Queen Almarion and dote upon him? Her life with Cal 
both Halakar was unhappy, and she begrudged him her son, Anarion, and there was strife between them thereafter. She sought to subject him, claiming to be the owner of his land, and forbidding him to dwell upon it. For she would not, as she said, have her husband a farm steward. From this time comes the last tale that is recorded of those unhappy things. For Ancalame would let none of her women wed, and although for fear of her most were restrained, they came from the country about and had lovers with whom they wished to marry. So clearly history is repeating itself here, and mm. uh, we get another very unhappy union, and she and her husband torment each other in very similar ways to Aldarion and Arendis when the narrative goes on. And even in worse ways, because Aldarion and Arendis, um, they treat each other badly because they f- they feel that the other is trying to uh, assert some form of power over them or want something from them, which, which they feel is like an assertion of power. Here we see on column A is directly asserting power over her spouse. You know, your lands are my lands, you know, and really trying to control things in a much more direct and profound and obvious way. Well, at least her parents like loved each other. At some point. There yeah. was a time when they really loved each other mm. and, and the woundedness was that much deeper. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting twists that I think it, exist in this relationship uh, for Ancalame is, I mean, I think it does say that she did love him initially. You know, they had this, mm-hmm. you know, they're rolling in the bushes with the, with the sheep or whatever, you know, I mean, <laughs> Thanks they, for the they had this, inter- they had this, you know, honest, loving relationship, but then I expect to see that, but then, you know, <laughs> He uh, he's like, oh, you know. By the way, I am of the land of Elros. We can get married. And basically, you know, he tricked her. He pulled one over on her, and she doesn't like that one bit. And so that's like a huge betrayal, a, a massive betrayal that she can never really get over. And for whatever reason, they still get married. I guess, at least in one version of the narrative, they get married. Probably under you know because of political pressure, she didn't want to lose the scepter by not getting married. That's I mean that's kind of a microcosm of the tragedy of her parents' relationship because she did love this boy and then he, she's betrayed by him and it just underscores that she can never trust a man. It just proves right all the things that Arendis had uh, taught her. And it goes back to that idea of woundedness and trauma being cyclical mm-hmm. like you were talking about, Heidi. Like mm. it's now it's to the next generation. Mm. And in some ways, this story finds ultimate healing in the love story between Aragorn and Arwen. I mean, because he is of the line of Numenor. So he carries, I mean, if we're in Tolkien's world of you know, the bloodline, he carries this story as part of his ancestry. Uh, and um, she, in their relationship, they both lay down their lives um, figuratively and literally for one another. And so uh, Arwen gives up her mortality for Aragorn and Aragorn, you know, he's willing to not claim all of the you know, privileges of his kingship um, in order to do what's best for, for his realm. And that's, you know, that was what um, Aldarion's dad was, father, the king was trying to tell him, this is your duty. Um, and so they, they have the relationship that sort of melds, uh, love and mutual respect and do and mutual duty on the responsibility of what it means to be in leadership. And so that just kind of amplifies the, the beauty of the final resolution. 
Redemption. I had never thought of that. Thank you for bringing that to light because that had not occurred to me. Well, you got to find a ray of hope where you can, right? Because right? <laughs> this story is just so bleak. Yeah. bleak. Even just down to the end. It's uh, the, the ending, um, the line, Erendus yes. oh. perished in water. So let's, do you want to read that whole last paragraph, Heidi? Yeah. Yeah. Of Arendus, it is said that when old age came upon her, neglected by Ancalame and in bitter loneliness, she longed once more for Aldarion. Oh, it just breaks my heart. So sad. <laughs> and learning that he was gone from Numenor on what proved to be his last voyage, but that he was soon expected to return, she left Emerier at last and journeyed unrecognized and unknown to the haven of Romena. There, it seems, she met her fate, but only the words, Erendus perished in water in the year 985, remain to suggest how it came to pass. Uh, heart And that wrenching. is the end. Heart, totally heart-wrenching. And also, do we <sighs> think she drowned? Do we think it was suicide? Right. If so, no death by drowning. I mean, talk about like a history, a literary history of women drowning. Like that could be a whole mm. other podcast. <laughs> so what a, what an yeah. interesting fate for horrendous and, and tragic. So tragic. Because she said, I will never be one of those women who, those mariners' wives right. who sit at the and at the shore and look out over the ocean waiting for their husband to return. And that is exactly what she becomes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly that's where she ends her life. That's where she ends her life. And and are we supposed to understand that Aldarion was gone on this journey and he died on this journey, that he never made it back? Because it said um, he was gone from Numenor on what proved to be his last voyage. I mean, maybe he came back and never voyaged again, but another interpretation is that he died on the voyage and never returned. And because he never returned, Arendus, you know, died accidentally or on purpose. <laughs> and all of the works, all the big projects that he did, all of his rationale for, not. for doing, it was all for not. Oh, yeah. we. Didn't... I think I'm just... Gonna go like go eat some ice chocolate yeah. ice cream. This is so depressing. Although, it's a downer. It, although it does say it does say. So even though it did say that you know all of his works, all of his projects were unfinished, and then Alcalame abandoned them, it does say later that um, the first time uh, in the War of Elves and Sor- Sauron, uh, after he makes the ring and and sacks Eregion, when the kings of Numenor come and save the day and drive Sauron back, the first time, not when they take him captive, but the first time. The reason that that was made possible, and the only reason it was possible, was because the prep of the preparations that Aldarion started with Vinyalonde. So even though they were completed in his lifetime, it laid the groundwork for later works that allowed them to defeat Sauron. So it is important. All worth it then. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So one interesting point that, um, Heidi, that we talked about in the last episode, which hasn't been released yet, so you haven't heard it, but talking about tie-ins to the larger plot um, is in the letter from Gilgalad read by Tarman Elder. It's Gilgalad who is, you know, high and older an elf who had seen the light of the trees, you know, he um, viewed Aldarion very highly. His advice was really important. Uh, highest among elf friends. He says something to that effect. So Aldarion is, is very high and doing a great job in Middle-earth, 
which is in such contrast to everything we see in this story in terms of his relationship with Arendis, which is the focus of the narrative. But so it, we thought that was a really interesting dichotomy. And so they could play that up in the show, really illustrate how crap he is at home, but how great he is in Middle Earth when it comes to you know preparing for war and the defense and the expansion of Numenor and all that stuff. Well, I think this, okay, so this is something that I've wrestled with a little bit. Do we think, so they come to tragic ends, well, at least Arendis does. We don't know if Aldarion comes to a tragic end or not. He's got to come to a tragic end. Does he? We don't know. But is there something unfair? I know, I want it. I want it. (laughs) Okay, but is there something unfair and gendered in that Arendis dies alone, commits suicide, all of her work is in vain. She's this bitter individual who is relegated to this small place of only women. She's kind of stewing in her own um, bitterness. And meanwhile, Aldarion does leave a legacy right. that is carried on. And um, it sort of goes on. Wasn't that on her to- choice? Was I mean, relegated would imply that somebody else imposed that. Well, I mean, the the one thing that I would say was, yes, she chose to remove herself from the Capitol. But I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast in that she could she could have stayed, but she could never have ruled at that point. She couldn't have been who she was supposed to be, which was the queen. Um, She had no real true power in the sense of. Um, she couldn't make any decisions for the realm. She couldn't do anything without permission. So, in many ways, I think she is a um, she is a subject to the circumstances of her time in that way. Yes, and I don't think Tolkien ever meant for us to question that. Mm. I think that was like Michael was saying earlier. I think that was kind of goes along with noble blood, just. An accepted part of the social geography. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Except, yes, but we do see examples of women who, in spite of their circumstances, um, in spite of their higher uh, position in social hierarchies, push back on those and even go against the norm uh, to go on and achieve things. You know, for example, Luthien of Baron and Luthien was forbidden to be with Baron, but she defied her father. She... You know, she did all these different things, grandiose things, and um, went on to, you know, achieve a great victory. So I, I guess I'm just thinking about where Arendis falls in the scheme of all of this. Mm. But mm. but I think you are right in that perhaps... She falls into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so macabre. <laughs> no, I think... I think you're possibly right in that. Um, again, my modern my modern peepers are just reading all over this story. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's what makes the adaptation is going to be so interesting at how it translates, how how they how the decision makers choose to bring this story, um, you know, into our keep it in their age but bring it into our age, and then how people are going to receive it. Um, it, you know, and it's going to be watched not just here, but around mm-hmm, the world. Right. Um, and it is going to be watched in cultures that are you know, still more patriarchal. And so, yeah, I think that the message could still be received and be fruitful. Hmm. So I want to ask a question, and this is the type of question that's probably impossible to answer, but this story was written 
near the end of Tolkien's life. Um, I think mm. it, the earliest drafts were no later than 1965, and he died in 73, so um, pretty close to the end of his life. Mm. And I, I've gotten the impression from other people, uh, scholars talking about Tolkien, that perhaps his views on women and, and gender changed you know, over the course of his life, as people change over the course of their life on, on many subjects, mm. um, or that he thought about them more or differently. And so I'm looking at this this story, and I'm wondering, th- does this evidence a changing view um, with respect to gender? I mean, it's it's notable that um, Aldarion basically breaks the patriarchy by changing the law so that a woman can rule, right? In, in a way. Um, but he, even though he does it to spite Arendt, right? Yes, he makes well, the point. Exactly. This is yeah. personal, not political. Right. I'm doing this because I hate my wife. <laughs> And this is, I mean, this story is unique in that it's the only story that Tolkien ever wrote that really examines relationships. There are love stories, but, you know, the story of Aragorn and Arwen basically ends with their happily ever after, you know, and it's romantic and Baron and Luthien, it's kind of the same thing. They, they fight external forces and in the end are united sort of in the afterlife and that's their happily ever after. There's no story that's like, okay, we're married and now what mm. happens, you know? Um, and mm. this is the only story he ever wrote like that. And it's so unique in that respect. And it happened at the end of his life. Um, he had to be aware of the social changes that were going on around him. I mean, you know, he, he worked at Oxford, right. which was like, a, you know, only male professors. And then they changed that rule and there were female professors at Oxford um, during his tenure there. So he watched all these changes and he, you know, he worked with female professors and worked closely with his female students and, um, mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if this story is a product of him just being exposed to these ideas hmm. and maybe evolving, maybe exploring them. Um, what do you guys think about that? I think it's entirely possible. And Michael, you and I have discussed not on the podcast uh, yet, but we have discussed some more. Um, I want to choose the right word. I wouldn't say troubling, but I mean, maybe I'll say upsetting. There are some upsetting things that Tolkien has said about women in letters. Oh, yes. There are some upsetting. I'm going to use that word because it actually did upset me when I read it. (laughs) So I'm going to say, I'm going to say that I can only hope his views evolved and changed. And I think you might be right. All of our views evolve and change um, as we get more information and we learn new things. Um, And I know that it was said that Tolkien was particularly... um, was treated his students equally. He he did not treat the women differently than he treated the men. Um, he had close relationships with his you know female students. He was well respected by his female students and respected them in turn. So I yeah I I, I think that's that's a good point and I think you might be right in that um, even though he was sort of part of a boys club for the majority of his life, he was less inclined to shut women out of academia than some of his colleagues were. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it, 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 you know, notably C.S. Lewis um, was deeply skeptical of, of female academics. I hope I don't get heat for that, but I did read that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, right. yeah, so I think that's possible. Yeah. It, and it's also interesting that in this, he comes perilously close to real life. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The, yes. the myth, and you've you've talked about this well in, in previous episodes about that this you know sometimes it's like you read this and you're like is it, are we still in fantasy land right. here are we are we still a part of a mythology 
Um, and I, I, I think the, the question you asked Michael about is he, does this show that he's learning and growing? Um, you know, I've also read about his relationship with his wife and how that changed and probably changed him. And if you're not changed by your relationship, then you don't really have one. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, I wonder too, if he was, um, looking at the broader scope of things. I mean, I'm always coming back to the context of, of Tolkien writing about in a post-war era. Um, I mean, again, because the theme of war is woven into this, because this is a, a war between a husband and wife, but it's also kind of leading into the, the question of his role in the war in, in, in Middle Earth. And then um, the, the, the will to power. And I, I don't know if this is an answer to your question or not, but you you pointed out that hey um and, and what's his name and Derek oh, <laughs> I see Michael you and Michael you had problems with this too and I, I don't know if it's hereditary yeah. it's a family that I, it's a family <laughs> I cannot remember it's in the I, mean, I just cannot wrap my name around <laughs> it's in the bloodline so Alderian um like he was this great guy right and he was he like you're always better behaved at your friend's house than you are at your own home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he goes to Middle Earth and he's this hero. But there's this one quote that kind of haunts me. And it's actually something that Arendis's mother has insight into Eldarion. Um, when she says, um, ships he may love, but I think it is not the winds or the great water, but some heat in his mind or some dream that pursues him. Mm. And Eldarion looked forward to days when the people would need more room and greater wealth, he dreamed of the glory of Numenor and the power of its kings, and he sought for footholds whence they could step to wider dominion. And again, I'm kind of like telescoping out um, and thinking about what, how that moment, how that leader um, led to the fall of Numenor, because that's exactly what right. led to the island being cast into the, it, it, just like Arendis, the whole island was cast into the, onto the water right. um, oh my God. because they wanted to expand their dominion. And so, you know, even though this isn't a, fa- a, a fable or an allegory, um, you, you can start to see um, what, yes, the world has just come through this kind of cataclysm of war, but then you look at your own relationships and you think, is the seeds of what created this, you know, terrible reality of world war, are those same seeds of, you know, the will to power and I'm not going to bend mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stick up for myself, come what, even if it costs me and others have, is that also within me? And so maybe he was being more introspective toward the end of his life and looking at his own character and his own relationships. That's so interesting. And I mean, I'm just thinking about the amount of time he spent in his life on his work, but also on this, you call it a hobby. I mean, it it was in a way his work, but writing Lord of the Rings. And I believe I, I read somewhere, and Jen, you read his biography, but that it was a source of tension between him and his wife the amount of time mm-hmm. he spent working on on the legendarium, on this, these stories, on these languages, um, and, and just at work in general, and as being part of the Inklings and this boys' club, which she was not allowed to participate. It in. was a world that his wife couldn't enter, right? And in a way, it's like it, it's the equivalent of him going out to sea yeah. and not taking his wife with him. Although, 
he did offer, <laughs> at least in this story, he offered it to right, me. Right, right, right. Was a, he's just like, no way, I would die. There's no amount of drama <laughs> mean in the world that I could take. Get me on that trip. Oh, oh my gosh, I get so this is, <laughs> I get so seasick. I am so sympathetic. Yeah. When totally. she says, "Let me off of this boat," <laughs> I had this visceral memory of being <laughs> on a boat cruise and being so miserable. Like if I am on this boat one more, one more minute, I am going to. Be... Also, with his guild adventures, like a bunch of smelly men and. <laughs> Can you imagine? No? I am very sympathetic to her at that moment in the no. story. Thank you. Well, Heidi, what an absolute pleasure to have you on this show. I mean, we've got to have you back. I think, Michael, I think we would both agree that you need to be. We'd love to have you back as often as you possibly want to come back. Yeah. Don't... Well, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. And it just brings back such great memories. You can see how Michael and I just kind of, we just go off on and talk about this stuff all the time. So we're just kind of hanging out and talking and whoever's listening, just yay. Thank you for being part of the, letting us talk yeah. and being part of the conversation. Well, um, something that I intend to ask all the guests is, where can people find you? What's your social media handle? But I'm pretty sure you don't really use social media that much. So good on you, Heidi. Good on you. Ah. Not, not like a, a public social media. <laughs> I am not a persona. I'm on Facebook. I have email. <laughs> you have published books as well. I yes, in fact, um, one has just came out today. Oh my I got gosh. the book in the mail today. So wow. Yeah. I hope you're um, celebrating. Um, actually, I have not yet gathered up the courage to open up the box. <laughs> wow. So it's sitting there. Like, I know the books are there, and I'm just so scared to go and look at them because there might be a giant typo in them. But I'm I'm actually really, really excited. That and where can people find your book, and what is it called? The book is called – well, actually, it is – relevant to our topic today. The book is called Real Connections, Ministries to Strengthen Church Community Relationships. And it is about moving relationships. I write for churches and it's about moving relationships to the center of church life and ministry. So focusing not just on activities and programs, but on really connecting with people. Wow. That's great. Amazing. That's so great. Is that available? Like uh, can people buy it on Amazon or... Where can people get it? it? Yes, Amazon, um, or it's published by Judson Press. And so um, the Judson Press website, and you just Google it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and, or Amazon <laughs> search for it is written with my wonderful co author, Joy Shakespeare, spelled S K J E G S T A D. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Goldberry. It was just a, a total delight, and we hope you all have enjoyed this. This concludes our discussion of Adal Darion and Arendis. We will not Yay. be visiting our tortured lovers anymore, but thank you. <laughs> Until we watch it on exactly. Amazon, Until right? we see it on the big screen. <laughs> One can only hope. Love your podcast. Keep it up. Thank you. Thanks, thank Heidi. You. May the hair on your toes never fall out. So, Heidi, we have a little Grey Havens um, section, just a short one. Are you up for a few rapid-fire questions? Lay it on me. Okay, so the rules are you have to answer 
right away. Don't hesitate. Just gut reaction. Okay. Um, if you take more than five seconds, I'm going to add more questions. Is that supposed to be a penalty? I'm pretty sure that Heidi would be happy to answer more questions. <laughs> it's, a, it's a penalty. So, Michael, you could be the timer. You can go, ah, okay. if it's five seconds. <laughs> if it's five seconds or more. Okay. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. (laughs) Okay. Which of the three Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films is your favorite? Uh, The first one. Okay, Frodo or Sam? Sam! Rivendell or Hobbiton? Rivendell. Gollum or Smeagol? Oh, come on. Is that even... Okay, Smeagol. (laughs) (laughs) You're stranded on an island with one Lord of the Rings character. Who would you choose? Mary. Favorite Tolkien quote? Um, okay, it's gonna be five. Don't put me in a cage. Wow, okay. Legolas or Aragorn? <laughs> not that that was a paraphrase of That's Aowen. okay. Oh, accepted. <laughs> Legolas or Aragorn? Oh, that's a tough one. Legolas, because uh, Aragorn's taken. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was great. That was just. Wait, 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 wait. Is this the Orlando Bloom Legolas Ooh. or the Legolas oh. in the book Legolas? Oh, <laughs> Which, you got me there. Whichever I, one suits your fancy. Because I'm going for protein powder Legolas. <laughs> protein powder Legolas. All right. Some brain you know octane funny? oil. Here's, yes. a, here's a little fun fact. As, a, as like an adolescent, I would have totally said Legolas as an adult. Aragorn, duh, 100%, no doubt. Like, what yeah. a friggin' fox. Yeah, but I'm I'm married to my Aragorn. So. Oh. Yeah. <laughs>